What beautiful words those are at the end of uh, what we just sang. That the Lord did not despise nor spurn the grief of one oppressed, nor did he shun his cry for help, but heard and gave him rest. That is true uh, first and foremost of Christ his son, the singer of that psalm who was forsaken yet also uh, raised in order to declare the name of God amongst his brethren. But as we're united to him, we also have the confidence and assurance that he does not shun our cry for help either, but hears and gives us rest. Come now to the uh, reading of God's word, one of the means by which he gives us that rest. I will read first from the Old Testament, Isaiah uh, chapters 52 and 53. We'll read beginning at 52.13 through uh, Isaiah 53.12. Much like Psalm 22, this uh, psalm speaks of a a suffering servant, uh, yet one who is not only a suffering servant, but also a royal servant, one who will be exalted before kings says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong. 
because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We'll turn over to Matthew chapter 27 and read beginning at verse 57. We'll read to 28.15 about the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 57. This is uh, just after Christ has been crucified. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Jesus took the body and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now this far, the reading of God's words. Congregation, I've been uh, preaching through the Gospel of Matthew for the last year and a half or so at Emmanuel. And one of the themes 
that we've seen throughout the gospel is uh, Christ as king. Matthew uh, fronts that from the very beginning with the Davidic-shaped genealogy at the beginning of the book, patterned around uh, three groups of 14, which is the numerical pattern, or the numerical value of David's name, uh, David the king. He uh, shows us in the, the frequent use of the term kingdom of heaven that this Jesus of whom he speaks is indeed the king. He, he shows us in the fact that uh, Matthew chapter 13, those parables of the kingdom are at the literary center of the whole gospel. And then he shows us especially in Matthew chapter 27, just before what we read this morning, where Christ is crucified as king with a crown of thorns on his head, a a royal robe over his back, a, a mock scepter in his hand, and a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. Matthew is very concerned to show us that this Jesus is the king. Which means then that the burial and resurrection that we've just read of a moment ago are the, the burial and resurrection of a king. That's why uh, Christ is placed in a rich man's tomb in his burial. It's why, if we had kept reading just a few more verses, he says in verse 18 that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, has been given to him. This is the king. And belonging to his kingdom are certain subjects we meet in this passage. You think of uh, Joseph of Arimathea and the women uh, among them. But we also meet certain enemies of the kingdom, the, the chief priests and the elders. Really, in this passage, we see three categories of uh, persons whom will uh, take somewhat out of order. First, we see the king. It is Jesus, then we see his enemies, and then finally we'll look at his subjects in this clash of kingdoms. Look with me first at the king. We see two movements of Christ in this passage, one uh, downward and one upward in verses 57 to, to 61 is the final part of Jesus' humiliation in his burial. And then at the end of our passage, we see that the first step or first chapter in his exaltation as Jesus rises from the dead. I'm concerning that first movement, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist. And it says this, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a very lowly condition, and his being made under the law in his undergoing the miseries of this life, and the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Jesus' burial on Good Friday and his lying in a tomb on Holy Saturday, continuing under the power of death for a time, are indeed the climax to his earthly humiliation. Ritterboss says, here, as in the entire gospel, Matthew is telling the story of Christ telling us very little about Joseph to focus our attention not on him but on the main point, namely that the path of humiliation walked by God's anointed descended even to the grave where death reigns supreme. Mercilessly imposing its curse, the curse of Genesis 3.19, to dust you shall return. 
Christ was dragged down to the place of deepest humiliation and defilement, imprisoned behind a heavy stone. Enduring not only the pain and and suffering and curse of death, but even the terror of the grave in order that he might save us from the grave. We had a funeral here about a week and a half ago, and the reason why we are able to preach the comfort that we are at the graveside is because Christ was buried in the grave. Because he endured its terror that he might save his people from it forever. This is an essential part of his humiliation, his bearing the curse, his taking our place. This burial of Jesus is not merely a bridge from the crucifixion of Matthew 27 to the resurrection of Matthew 28, but but Matthew spends 10 verses on it, all four Gospels included. The burial of Jesus is not incidental. But there he bears our curse. And as he does so, Matthew includes uh, certain details for us in this passage, like that of verse 57, that this Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. Because Isaiah 53 verse 9 said that even though Christ would die among the wicked, you think of those two uh, robbers that he's crucified next to, that he would be buried with a rich man. So Matthew is intentionally including this detail to tip us off to the fact that Christ is continuing to fulfill the scriptures even in his burial. That everything this man did was a fulfillment of God's plan even in his death, even in his burial. God's purposes are fulfilled. The very nature of Christ's burial confirms that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That same passage we just read where those other aspects of Christ's humiliation are set forth, how he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter and yet keep his mouth silent before his shears. How he would be beaten on the back such that that stripes of blood would, would cover it. How he would become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, numbered among transgressors. Matthew is, is further reminding us that Christ is that suffering servant of whom we read in Isaiah. And yet that even though he is despised and rejected, his burial also fulfills that royal burial of God's Davidic servant in Isaiah 53. Here we see the humiliated servant, the humiliated king, also being honored in his burial, in his humiliation. Um, John, in uh, I believe it's chapter 19 of his gospel, even tells us that 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes are used in anointing the body of Jesus at his burial. This is the burial of a king, preparing the way for his exaltation in chapter 28. We'll say just a few words about that. The resurrection of which we read a moment ago in Matthew 28 is um, also prophesied in that very same servant song of Isaiah 53. If you have that before you still, uh, looking at, at verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says that even though this suffering servant will uh, make his soul an offering for sin, it goes on to say that he will see his seed and he will prolong his days. 
It's an interesting thing to say about someone who was just buried in the previous verse. It says that the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. In his hands. He will see the labor of his soul and he will be satisfied. Even verse 12, dividing the spoil with the strong. How could Jesus see his seed and prolong his days? How could he divide the spoil with the strong unless the death of which Isaiah 53 speaks is not final? We see already in that servant song hints of resurrection. And we can say the same thing about Psalm 22, which we sang, how it speaks of this Davidic king being forsaken by God, being pierced, being mocked, his clothes being ripped from his back, and yet also having his prayer answered that he might declare God's name to his brothers in the midst of the assembly. The Christ's resurrection of which we just read in Matthew 28 is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures. And so in fulfillment of the prophets and and the Psalms and in fulfillment of of this great Old Testament theme of of the third day, you think of Hosea 6 and God speaking of restoring his people from exile on the third day. You think of uh, Jonah on the third day having a, a sort of resurrection experience. In fulfillment of all of that, Christ rises on Easter morning. Matthew tells us there was a great earthquake and an angel descended, his uh, clothing being white as snow, his countenance like lightning, and the guards shook for fear of him and become like dead men. All of this accompanies the resurrection of Jesus. And then the angel says to the women of verse 5, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said. And then he shows them the place where Jesus had been lying inside the tomb and they are filled with fear and great joy. The resurrection of the king is a fear-inducing and also joy-producing event. Uh, One so glorious that it is announced by an angelic messenger proclaiming the the exaltation of the formerly crucified king. He proclaims it in word as he gives this message to them. And then notice also how he shows them with the visible sign of an empty tomb. He preaches the gospel to them by word and also with a visible sign. Even as Christ continues to raise up messengers to proclaim his victory, in word, and then to confirm it with visible signs like the Lord's Supper, which likewise fills us with great joy. The sign of the tomb is a source of joy, and the sign of the empty tomb is a source of comfort. That Christ has overcome death, that as we bury loved ones, we do so in the confidence that Christ has already gone into the grave in order that they might come out of it. A death might lose its sting. So for those of you who are ill, for those of you who have loved ones who are ill, for those of you who find yourself coming nearer and nearer to the point of death, look at Christ's humiliation in his burial and his exaltation in rising from the grave and draw comfort from the fact that he endured and overcame the terror of the grave in order that he might be able to save you from it forever. Be assured that for the Christian, death has lost its sting. As we look at the humiliation and exaltation of the king, we are filled with comfort and we are filled with joy. Indeed, it's that joy that brings us here this morning, worshiping Christ on the day 
of resurrection, the day in which we confess with the psalmist in Psalm 118, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So even as the resurrection filled them with fear and with joy, leading them to worship, so we find ourselves doing that same thing this morning. Glorying in the victory of our humiliated and exalted king. And yet even as we glory in the victory of our humiliated and exalted king, it's also the case that this kingdom has enemies. Uh, we sing often from Psalm 23, boys and girls, maybe you've uh, memorized that at home or in school, that Davidic psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, a, a psalm prophetic of the very humiliation and exaltation of Christ who went in to the valley of the shadow of death for us and is then exalted to a table of feasting. It's a beautiful psalm from which we rightly derive comfort, but notice as you think about that psalm that that table of feasting of which Psalm 23 verse 5 speaks is in the presence of his enemies. So it's those enemies that we consider next. The uh, humiliated and then exalted king has enemies. Notice we uh, take these somewhat out of order. Uh, Since the king's subject and enemies are somewhat interwoven throughout, we'll look at the enemies first, and then we'll uh, close on the somewhat happier note of the king's subjects. Uh, Notice the enemies whom we meet in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, and then again in 28, 11 through 15 in these two episodes. First, the uh, chief priests and the Pharisees. It says that they gather together to Pilate, on the next day. And boys and girls, if Jesus was buried on Good Friday, that would make the next day Saturday, which uh, for the saints in the Old Testament was the Sabbath, the day on which God's people are supposed to appear before God. And yet here we find them appearing before Pilate. I'm even calling him Lord. That word for sir in verse 63 is elsewhere translated Lord. And um, every time we see it in Matthew's gospel, it is ascribed either to Jesus or to God. And so ironically, those who have continually been accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath are here appearing before Pilate on the Sabbath. And the request that they bring before him continues to be one that is filled with evil intent. Even as they plotted to destroy Jesus on the Sabbath, back in Matthew 12, they continue to plot against him. They call Jesus an imposter. They say that he's a fraud. They ask Pilate to give a guard to to, uh, secure the tomb, lest Christ's disciples steal him away and lie, saying that he's risen from the dead. A number of commentators make uh, an interesting observation at this point, that uh, one of Christ's disciples at this point in the gospel has just betrayed him and killed himself. Their fearless leader has just denied Jesus three times, cowering in front of a slave girl. And the rest are are in hiding, cowering in fear, while the women of verses 55 and 56, the women of verse 61, look on leading some to wonder if the chief priests and the scribes are really worried about Jesus' body being stolen by his fearful disciples. Or, if they might not be worried instead that the words of Jesus, which they quote in verse 63, might actually be fulfilled. That he would indeed rise from the dead. They've already seen him raise Lazarus, heal lepers, feed the multitudes. If he said that he's going to rise from the dead... 
Why not? But if he can, if this crucified king really has even power over the grave, that it is folly to think that they can put a guard or a few guards and a stone over the tomb to hold him back. And yet in verse 66, they proceed to seal the tomb and set a guard in place. If you have a study Bible with you, maybe something like the ESV study Bible with some nice cross references in the middle there, you might notice an interesting parallel between verse 66 and Daniel chapter 6, where similar language is used as a stone there also is laid upon a cave and sealed that the innocent sufferer who's been arrested on trumped up charges by religious and political enemies might not escape. Remember Daniel, as he was in the lion's den, they sought to seal it with a large stone. But this stone here in Matthew 27 is no more successful than the stone of Daniel's enemies, for the one inside is the greater than Daniel, who is is saved not just from the mouth of lions, but from death itself. In fact, he is that great stone of Daniel 2 who would crush every other stone. And so this stone that they lay over the grave will not hold him back. One of the lessons then that we learn from this passage, one of the, the lessons that we learn even from the, the burial and the stone that they place over it is that the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. Yes, there will be those who hate the kingdom of Jesus, but even their best attempts at thwarting God's purposes will fail. Even as we pray in Lord's Day 48, or I hope you pray from Lord's Day 48, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy words. That's part of what we pray when we pray thy kingdom come for the destruction of every other kingdom and every kingdom which would set itself against the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew 27 is a reminder that that prayer will be fulfilled. Matthew 27 is a reminder of Jesus' words from Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. That when the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, They will not overcome him. They will not prevail. We're to see in the resurrection that is about to take place a token of God's power in overcoming the evil forces that continue to revolt against him even today. The evil forces that revolt against his suffering saints in Syria and Saudi Arabia. The evil forces that revolt against his waiting saints in Western Africa or his crying out for justice saints in North Korea. He gives us every assurance that the gates of hell will not prevail. He gives Canadian and American Christians every assurance that though some may seek to mute the gospel, though some may seek to to, um, imprison pastors or to distort the, the very marriage institution that God has woven into the fabric of society as a picture of the gospel, they will not succeed in these attempts. And yet they will keep on trying. And we see that in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 28, where it says that some of the guard come into the city and they tell the chief priests all that has happened with regard to Christ's resurrection and the appearance of that angel whose appearance was like lightning. Notice the response of the chief priests. Notice how they don't dispute the story. They don't appear to ask any questions. It's almost as if they expected this to happen. So verse 12, they take counsel together. 
They decide that they'll give a large sum of money to the soldiers and tell them to lie about what happened. Just a few verses ago, they've called Jesus a deceiver and imposter, and now here they are deceiving. I just want to make two points about these verses. The first is in regard to something that Christ said back in Matthew chapter 12, where um, he's just cast out a demon, he's just performed many mighty signs, and then the scribes and Pharisees come up to him and say, Teacher, we want you to show us a sign. And Jesus says, No sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so also the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he goes on to say that the men of Nineveh, the men to whom Jonah preached and showed that sign of resurrection, the men of Nineveh will rise up against this very generation, the the first century Jews, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but this generation will not. The sign of Jonah is the sign of death, burial, and resurrection. And here they are confronted with that same sign, but it doesn't matter. They just fabricate a story. Here we see the fulfillment of Christ's words for Matthew 12. And we also see a lesson as we share the gospel. That simply laying the evidence before someone is not enough. These men don't dispute the facts, but their hearts are hard. And so they need to be engaged at the level of the heart. It's not enough to simply reason people into the kingdom. They will suppress the truth. They will deceive themselves. That's what these men do. The opposing kingdom does not have reason and rationality on their side, but they have done away with that and opted for a fabrication of reality. That was the case with the unbelieving Jews of the first century. That is the case with every uh, uh, false religion and cult, even unto this day. That is the case with the modern sexual revolution. They have done away with reason for a fabrication of reality. Denying even that which is made plain in creation and celebrating that which is contrary to it. As they just did throughout the month of June. And yet even in the midst of this, we may be confident and the king who has all authority both in heaven and on earth and is with his people till the end of the age as he promises at the end of Matthew's gospel. Implying for us that Christ's kingdom will continue to go forth. But before Matthew gets to that in the Great Commission, he first shows us the subjects of that kingdom which will go forth. He shows us that at the end of uh, chapter 27 and then again at the beginning of, of chapter 28. Um, If this is indeed the king, then who do we find identifying with his kingdom? First in Matthew 27, verse 57, we find Joseph of Arimathea, a man who uh, has not yet appeared in Matthew's gospel, a man of whom relatively little is known. The same might be said of the women in verse 61 or the women of verses 55 and 56 just before where we began our reading, several of whom are not even named. At a time when the twelve had forsaken Christ, there stand the women. Verse 55, ministering to him. Verse 61, facing the tomb. Matthew 28, 1, coming back to it on Easter morning. They are the ones to whom Christ first appears in Matthew 28, 9. 
believe we see a number of encouragements in these verses. J.C. Ryle says, Our Lord Jesus Christ has friends of whom little is known. This fact is full of comfort, for it shows us that there are some quiet, retiring souls on earth who know the Lord, and the Lord knows them, yet they are little known by the church. It shows us the diversity of gifts among Christ's people, some who glorify Christ actively, some who do it passively, some whose vocation is to build up the church and fill a public place, or some like Joseph, who only come forward in times of special needs. And yet each of them glorifies God in their diverse ways. Just after this passage is uh, the Great Commission, and uh, perhaps you've heard sermons on that before or read things about that before that only uh, weigh you down with more guilt for not uh, doing enough or for not having a public enough ministry, for not doing enough in the way of personal evangelism, for not going overseas and, and doing something radical. But here we see quiet disciples used by God in his kingdom. Here we see that there is a place for introverts in the kingdom of Jesus. There is a place for women in the kingdom of Jesus. There is a place for mothers in the kingdom of Jesus. I was reading something uh, recently from Archibald Alexander, the old uh, Princeton professor in the 1800s, where he, he says, I've often heard pious females complain that they had little or nothing in their power and felt like they were almost useless members of society. And he says, this is an egregious miscalculation. Their influence is silent and spreads imperceptibly, but is real and effective. He says, the question is often asked, by whom shall Jacob arise? And I would say, by pious mothers. Yes, as a woman had the unspeakable blessing of being the mother of our Lord, so woman collectively shall be the mother of the church. If true religion, he says, must begin in the home, then to whom belongs the chief agency and most distinguished honor, undoubtedly, to pious mothers. Archibald Alexander is making the point and, and goes on to say that, that sometimes we depart from this fear that God has, has given us, thinking that we'll be of more use, but God has plenty of use for us outside the public eye. Cultivating godliness in our children or the children of the church, silently praying for her members, as I know many of you do. Uh, giving generously to the work of the kingdom, even as Joseph does here in this passage, showing us that even though Matthew said uh, in many places throughout his gospel that wealth can be a snare, it can also be used of great good, as by many of you it is, in supporting the schools and supporting the seminaries and supporting the church and, and seminarians and church planters and the needy among us. And in so doing, giving great honor to your king. I want you to see and be impressed by the kind of kingdom that Christ is building. This is the nucleus of, of the new society that he has established by his death. And so far, this new society, this new kingdom is composed of background people, of women, of those who elsewhere in the gospel are off in the background with children. But Jesus says that's where all disciples should be. Matthew 18 not proudly putting themselves forward, but humbly serving. Not drawing attention to your charitable acts, Matthew 6, but giving like that widow with two mites. 
All along, throughout the gospel, we, we've been thinking that Peter and, and James and John are the main characters, but now, at the climax of the gospel, to quote one writer, the punchline comes and we see that the truest disciples are the ones we've barely noticed. And so it often is in the church we glory over men with gifts, yet how often do they fall? All the while hardly noticing the widow in the back, the mother in the nursery, the person who gets here early to set up live stream, the person who gets here early to, to prepare the communion bread, the person whose gifts allow the church to meet in a tent or in the parking lot. Here we see true greatness. An otherwise unknown disciple who honors Christ by giving a tomb a, a handful of named and unnamed women, two of whom become the very first ones to whom Christ appears after he rises from the dead. Continuing this theme from Matthew's gospel of Christ's kingdom not being measured by a worldly yardstick, but rather by an inverted value system. We see that in the Beatitudes, for instance. That Christ's kingdom is not the sort of kingdom you might expect, where it is the powerful and the mighty and the notorious, but rather the weak and the lowly. And so he comes to them in verse 9 of Matthew 28, and he says, Greetings. He says, They fall at his feet. They grab hold of his feet and they worship him. The same place that we find ourselves this morning, at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him by hearing his word. Again, not the most spectacular thing by worldly standards, and yet Christ is honored by it. Boys and girls, Christ is honored as you sit here in church and seek to pay attention to the word and, and seek to listen to it. Moms, He's honored by your broken up, distracted attention as you uh, try to help your children and sometimes uh, find yourself feeling like you never quite take in enough. You, you might not be able to, to summarize the sermon in a single sentence. You might not have an opportunity to, to take notes, but you are bringing your children before Jesus. You yourselves are listening to Jesus, and he says, as he does to Mary in Matthew 26, you have done a beautiful work. A work that may go unnoticed by the world, but not by me. He says, I'm honored by your desire to attend to my word, and I will continue to give you just enough each week. As I come to commune with you, as I come to commune with my people. That's what we see Jesus doing in verse 9. The risen Christ comes to commune with his lowly disciples, and he receives their worship. Even as he says to them greetings, he says the same thing to us each Lord's Day in the salutation, grace and peace to you. I come in peace. Do not be afraid. The coming to commune with us lowly disciples, lifting us up to the banquet table of his, his grace where our cup overflows. And not only does Jesus invite lowly disciples like these women or background disciples like Joseph of Arimathea, but notice who else he invites in verse 10 of Matthew 28. He says, go and tell my brothers. Tell them to go to Galilee and there they will see me. There I will meet with them. I will commune with them also. These same brothers who forsook him in his hour of greatest need, falling asleep three times in Gethsemane, fleeing by the end of that chapter, these same brothers who wanted a seat on, on the right hand and the left of Jesus in his kingdom, not realizing that this king would be enthroned on a cross. These brothers who said, even if everyone else denies you, Jesus, I will not deny you. I will follow you even to death. 
and then cowered in the face of a little slave girl, cursing their Lord. It is those men whom Jesus calls brothers. The invitation to commune with the risen Lord is not reserved for those who have made themselves able, but the invitation is given to failures like Peter, to doubters like Thomas, to weak, frail, erring disciples. He calls them brothers. This risen, conquering king whose resurrection is accompanied by a powerful angel who comes with, with, with the appearance of lightning, with a great earthquake. This risen, conquering king is also a gentle and lowly savior who calls himself a friend of sinners, who heals us by his stripes and gives us wine to drink, who feeds us on his broken body. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of this crucified and risen Savior who communes with his lowly disciples and says, even as the angel says to them, do not be afraid. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. A crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell, but was then raised for our justification, proving that as we look to him in faith, his sacrifice truly pays for all our sins, and earns us a seat at his table. Even us lowly disciples, even us wayward disciples and background disciples, Father, we thank you that Christ makes us a part of his kingdom, and we thank you that his kingdom will prevail in the midst of his enemies, even using our humble contributions toward it to that end. That the gates of hell might seek vainly to prevail against it. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.